Valentine, what's going on? How you doing this morning? You good? Y'all awake? All right. It's good to see you guys. Hey, if you're new here, my name is Eric. I am one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 6. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 6. We're going to start at verse 1. We're going to head on down to verse 6. Uh, but I, I do want to address the elephant uh, in the room uh, before we uh, begin. You see, typically when a pastor is preaching and there is a large box in front of them, that doesn't mean good news, right? Um, but I want to tell you today that it, this, that is almost like, it, it's actually very similar to what is happening here because today, this is not a casket, it's actually a baptismal pool. And if you're new to this Christian faith, a baptism is a public declaration of someone's inward faith in Jesus Christ. In essence, this person is declaring that they have died to their old way of life, but their death is actually a cause of celebration because they've been raised to new life in Christ. And so I'm looking forward to celebrating two people who are making that uh, declaration today. I am excited. I really am. Uh, but before we get there, we're going to spend some time in this text. And so Mark sits. Uh, one uh, through six. Before we get to the text, uh, just by way of analogy, uh, I recently watched a documentary um, of a man named Dick Gregory. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard uh, this person, but uh, Dick Gregory grew up in poverty uh, in the South, but he had an ability to make people laugh, and so he became a comedian. Uh, he was a, a starving comedian at first. He wasn't making any money, and that was until he got his big break and soon he began to, uh, uh, to do his work in all these comedy clubs and on all these television stations all across the nation. And this was in the early 60s. He was loved. And this was until he became extremely active in the civil rights movement. Uh, he marched in the South. He became close to men like Megger Evers and Martin Luther King Jr. And as time went on, he helplessly watched as his close friends, Megger Evers and Martin Luther King Jr., were assassinated. His friends weren't the only things that he had lost. Because of his fervent work in civil rights, uh, his opportunities began to dry up. Uh, the money left him. The fame crept away because the same people who, want, who he once made laugh were not laughing anymore. The same people that once laughed were now angered at him. And it seems like people did not have room for the whole Dick Gregory they have room for the joy that he could give them, but no room for the offense that he could cause them. And I share that today to tell you this. Dick Gregory was not the first or the last that that has happened to. We've been in the book of Mark for the last few months, and so far, more or less, uh, the response to all that Jesus has been doing has been largely positive. There's some dissenters here or there in the first five chapters, but Jesus has begun his ministry. Everywhere he goes, he's teaching and he's healing. People are astonished by him. The lame walk, the blind see, the dead are raised. And everywhere he goes, it's more or less joy. However, in Mark 6, there's a slight turn. Jesus is in his hometown. He's preaching, and the response that he receives from his hometown isn't joy. Actually, everyone is offended by him. So it's almost as if the scriptures put this here in order to give us a simple reminder that we have to unpack today, and it's this. In order to follow Jesus Christ, we must make room not only for the joy that he gives, but for the offense that he causes. In order to follow Jesus, we must have room not only for the joy that he gives us, but also for the offense that he causes. 
We all have room. Here today, we all have room for a Savior that will make us say, wow. To say, wow, it is love. To say, wow, it is miracles. We all have room for a Savior that will make us say, wow. Hear me today. Do you have room for a Savior that will make you say, ouch? With that said, let me read the text. Mark 6, 1 through 6, here it is. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done in his name? Is, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hand on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And this is the word of God. And so today, just to give you a preview of coming attractions, we're going to simply just walk through the text. And I want to give you a couple of things that I think the Lord is trying to teach us uh, from this text in the Bible. And so I'm going to take a moment to pray, and then we're going to dive in. And so let's pray together. Um, Father, you have been so good to us. Thank you. And God, I pray as we hear your word today, I pray that we will sit beneath your word with rapt attention and that we will know that whenever your word is open, your mouth is open and you are speaking directly to us. We can't walk away ignoring this. So help us to humbly sit under your word. Help us to declare, God, whatever you are teaching me today, whatever you are telling me to do today, I will do it, no questions asked. Give us faith today. Help us to know you. I pray these things in the only way that I can that is in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. So if you agree, say amen, amen. All right, bit of context. Jesus has just healed a little girl in another region. And look at verse one. Verse one says, he went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. Let me give you some background. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And, but he spent his formative years, the years of his youth, in Nazareth. That was his block. Those were his people. And, and here's the thing. He goes back home. And his visit home wasn't like my visits home now. Like, when I go home now, I really don't recognize the area anymore. Like, there's so much development going on, and so many people that I grew up with have long moved away. But it wasn't like that in Nazareth. You see, this was before industrialization. This was what was before people steadily moved around because of their jobs. When Jesus went back home, rest assured that the same people that he grew up with were still there. And all of them were doing what their families had done for years and years. So think about it. His friends that he grew up with, running the streets with them, playing with, they were still around. The mothers and the women who nurtured him were still there. The, the teachers that he gleaned from, the town, people that knew his whole family and his aunties and uncles and all of them, they were still around. And these were a people and these were places that Jesus had a shared experience with, had a shared history with, and Jesus was going back. And you would think that because of all the miracles that Jesus was doing that he would get a hero's welcome. 
But that wasn't the case. I want to take you back to an instance even before this. You see, this wasn't the first time that Jesus went back home to visit his hometown. Um, Luke 4 actually records an earlier event. So Jesus goes back home alone without his disciples earlier on in ministry. He goes back home, he goes to the synagogue, he reads the book of Isaiah, he declares that he's the long-awaited Messiah who has come, he's a Messiah king who has come to save the people from their sins. And his hometown doesn't believe him. They're actually astonished by his teaching, but when he declares that, they get so angry with him. Catch this, the people that raised him, the people that nurtured him, the people that knew him, they become so angry at Jesus that he would declare himself to be the Messiah that they actually try to throw him off a cliff. This is what they do. So that's the first visit. And so you might be looking at me and you're like, listen, if that happened on the first visit, why in the world would Jesus go back home? But let me tell you, and I think first, verse 1 actually reveals it. It says that it came to, he came to his hometown, and catch this, and his disciples followed him. It's almost like Jesus is saying, listen, I need to show you guys something really important. You see, up until now, the overwhelming response, Jesus is saying, to my ministry has been positive. You've seen the dead rage. You've seen the blind see. You see the tears in the mother's eyes when, 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 when I brought her daughter uh, back to life. The response to me has been overwhelmingly positive. And here, Jesus, I believe, is taking his disciples back to his hometown in order to experience how the presence of Jesus not only causes joy, it also causes offense. And they must be prepared for the fact that the presence of Jesus in our lives, the fact that we bear the name of Christ, that will cause offense too. And so let's look at how the second visit goes. Look at verse two. It says, and on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done in his hands? It's not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brothers of and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and Simon are not his sisters here with us. And they took offense at him. So we see the conclusion. They are offended by Jesus. And it's interesting. Look at the passage. They are not offended by anything that Jesus said. They're not offended by anything that Jesus actually did. The text actually says in verse 2 that they are astonished by him. But what's so interesting about here is they're offended not by that, but they're offended because, Jesus, because who Jesus declares himself to be does not match their limited perspective of who he is. This is why they're offended. And you can see this offense in their line of questioning. They dismiss Jesus being the long-awaited king because they can't wrap their minds around Jesus being anything than who they think he is. And I think the line of questioning actually gives us some reasons why they rejected Jesus. Their rejection smacks of elitism and envy. Elitism and envy. First, elitism. The people can imagine the king coming to a humble town like Nazareth. That was a blip on the map. And not only that, they can imagine Jesus coming from a humble profession like a carpenter. I'm sure they're thinking, I'm sure they're thinking that if a king would come, wouldn't he come from the elite? If a king would come, wouldn't he come from the halls of power? 
Or even if he would come from Nazareth, wouldn't he come from maybe the religious leaders? He wouldn't come from, from such a humble profession as a carpenter. There seems to be the, 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 the assumption that a king would never stoop so low. But not only that, there seems to be a bit of envy here too. See, he's teaching in a synagogue, and his teaching is incredible. And it says here that they are astonished by his teaching. And look at the questions again. It says, um, it's not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, are not his sisters with us, and they took offense at him. Catch this. Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, which is the heart of the Jewish community. And his teaching is breathtaking. They're astonished by him. And in that synagogue, surely there are some rabbis in that town and they have spent their whole life training. And here Jesus, the carpenter, comes in, the person that they thought that they knew, that they grew up with. Jesus had no rabbinic training. He comes into their synagogue and he blows everyone away and they're offended. And they're offended. And let me tell you, what the town people are experiencing is not that uncommon. Let me explain. I don't know if anyone here has ever been to their high school reunion. I am a firm proponent that the social media has killed the high school reunion. I already know how you're doing, right? But yo, catch this. This year will be my 20th, what, the 20th high school reunion. That's crazy. Some of y'all look at me like, Eric, you're old. Some of y'all like, Eric, you're young, but whatever. But listen, pretty much, I feel like high school reunions are pretty much settings for envy, right? You go back to the, to the hometown, you go back to the places where, where, where you walk the, the same halls with these people, you took the same classes with these people, and over time, what you're doing is you're sizing each other up. You see, we all walk the same halls, and you took the same class, and envy happens when you go to the reunion, and you realize that that same person you walked the halls with, the same person you took the classes with, it seems like they're doing better than you. It's like when the famous artist comes back home, right? Or, or the person who's high ranking in the government comes back home. And, and, and right then, the seeds of envy come in. At first, you're amazed. You're like, wow, you're an amazing artist. Or you're astonished. Wow, you, 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 you're this amazing leader. But then envy, what typically happens is when astonishment turns to offense. <laughs> when astonishment turns to events, uh, to offense, you begin by thinking, wow, they're great, and then you turn around and think, why are they so great, and why not me? And I believe the text is saying something like that here. It says that they are astonished in verse 2, and it says they're offended in verse 3, and isn't that such an accurate description of envy? Envy happens when you are astonished first by somebody else's glory, and then you are offended because it's not yours. And the reason why I just said that is because, and this is an aside, it's not even in my notes. I know, I've st- I know this is a congregation, and this is a town in which we struggle deeply with envy. It is so easy to look beside us to a person who we think is comparable to us, and we see how the God has blessed them, and we tend to look at them and say, why not me? But what's incredible here is this. This text goes on and it reveals that because they miss who Jesus Christ actually is, they miss experiencing the greatness and goodness of God because of their unbelief. Look at verse 5. It says that God was, it says that Jesus was not able to do a miracle there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Yo, catch this. Jesus doesn't perform miracles there except a few. Why is that? 
Because miracles were not simply magic tricks to produce faith in those who had hard hearts. Let me explain. Miracles, kind of like parables, were signs of the kingdom of God that were meant to be a preview of coming attractions. Miracles were meant to be a sign that Jesus was king and that he was ushering in, he was inbreaking the kingdom of God. And so Jesus came and he caused the blind to see, he caused the dead to rise, he called the lame to walk to help you understand that when you live in the kingdom of God, there comes a day that, that, that when death, that death will cease, that tears will dry, that there'll be no more disabilities and no more pain. This is what we see. Miracles were signs of the kingdom of God and Jesus didn't get a sign of the kingdom because of their refusal to accept the king of the kingdom. He didn't get the sign of the kingdom because of their refusal to accept the king of the kingdom. And this is what we see. The people of Nazareth were offended by Jesus and this leads them to completely reject him. Okay, so I've detailed why Nazareth was offended by Jesus, but let me bring this home to your neighborhood with a simple question. We're gonna put this on the screen. Do you have room for a Jesus that can offend you? Do you have room for a Jesus that can offend you? Eric, what are you talking about? So I've, I've detailed all these reasons why Nazareth was offended, but the fact of the matter is this, she just offended everybody and for different reasons. Let me explain to you from the Bible. When you look through the book of Mark along the way, you see that Jesus offended all kinds of people. He offended people who had nothing in common with one another. He actually offended people who hated one another. Jesus pretty much was an equal opportunity offender. So shut this. The Herodians and the Pharisees both plotted to kill Jesus. Those were people who were on the right wing and the left wing of the day. They didn't get along at all, but they, both, they, they all hated Jesus. So, so, check, so also check this. The civil and religious leaders from Jerusalem were offended by Jesus. They were the elites. And then in Nazareth, you had this humble, simple town that no one knew about, and they wanted to kill him too. They were the common man. So get this, the right, the left, the elites, and the common man, they all were offended by Jesus and all for different reasons, illustrating the fact that to experience Jesus is to be offended by him. And you may think, why is that? Let me tell you why and I'm gonna give you an analogy. Because when you hang out with somebody um, that's different than you long enough, guess what? They're gonna offend you. When you hang out with someone long enough who is different than you, they are going to offend you. Uh, they are going to offend you. Our differences tend to be the setting of our offense. Catch that. You can write that down. Our differences tend to be the setting of our offense. Let me explain. I got a good friend who, um, who, who has fostered a lot of kids, and I remember a couple of years ago, uh, he fostered a young baby. This baby was like seven months old. The baby was removed from the mother. The mother had some situations she needed to work out, and the goal always was for um, reunification. Uh, my friend who um, fostered this child, he's, he's white, and the kid that he adopted was a black child. Child was seven months old. And when he, when he got the child, the child, man, his hair was, his hair was all over the place. And so my friend decided that uh, the child needed uh, a haircut. The kid is seven uh, months old. Uh, not a big deal, wrong. 
Because let me explain to you something. Let me explain to you. He didn't realize that in many different places in black culture, you don't cut a kid's hair until the kid turns one years old. Like, I don't get, I, don't ask me why, I don't make the rules. All I know is I didn't do it because my grandmother would have yelled at me, right? <laughs> and so my, my friend doesn't know any better. He cuts the kid's hair, he didn't call me, don't, um, whatever, he didn't know. <laughs> and so time for reunification came. So he brings the child back, the child has a freshly cut head, and the mother was incredibly offended. The mother was upset. So my friend calls me afterwards, and he says, man, why didn't you tell me? And I was like, man, I thought you knew. I'm sorry, bro. I'm sorry. And what I'm trying to describe there is that a cultural difference was a setting for an offense. It was a setting for an offense. See, the differences between individuals tend to be the setting for your offense. Those who are like you never offend you. <laughs> Those who are like you in every way never offend you. Because we, we get this. Listen, guys. We get this because we live in a culture right now that is easily offended because we are so polarized. <laughs> Our differences are so clear right now. So the right is offended by the left, and the left is offended by the right. The rich are offended by the poor, and the poor are offended by the rich because they live differently. And the elites are offended by the blue collar, and the blue collar are offended by the elites because, because they also think differently. You get the picture. The differences are the setting for the offense. But what's curious about our culture, hang with me here, is that with all of our differences and, and, and all of our offense, rarely do you meet somebody who's offended by Jesus. Rarely do you meet somebody who's offended by Jesus. Yes, they may be offended by Christians, but overwhelmingly when you talk to people, people aren't offended by Jesus. They say Jesus is some great moral teacher. Jesus was an amazing prophet. Jesus was an amazing moral leader. They'll, sell, they'll say these things about Jesus, but this is what I want to say. Anyone who was never offended by Jesus doesn't know Jesus. Anyone who is never offended by Jesus is proving that they don't know him, that they've never met him. Why? Stay with me, because there is no one who has ever walked this earth who was more different than us than Jesus Christ. Eric, what are you talking about? We tend to think that those who are on our political left or those who are political right or our socioeconomic north or our socioeconomic south are so different than us. But for all of us, there is no one who has ever walked this earth who is more different than us than Jesus Christ. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His love is infinitely better than ours. His morality is infinitely purer than ours. I could keep going, but the Bible actually has a junk drawer word for how different God is than us, and that's the word holy. God is holy. He is set apart. He is so different than us. And when human beings are confronted by the holiness of God, that he is holy other than us, one of the things that it does to us is that it offends us. But his holiness, God, is the setting for, all our, for our offense. His holiness reminds us that we are not as smart, that we are not as good as we think we are. And that's offensive. So hear me today, if you claim to worship a Jesus that never offends you, that's not Jesus, that's you. But hear me today, I, I, I'm not saying this to be glib or whatever. I'm saying this, Jesus doesn't offend you simply to offend you. He offends you because he loves you. He offends you because he loves you. Why? Because when we are confronted by Jesus, 
We are offended because we are brought face to face with the reality that we are not as smart or wise or good as we think we are. But yet, it is only when we are brought face to face with our inadequacy that we will actually reach out for his help and salvation. He offends us because he loves us. One of the most loving things that God can do is to bring you to that place. And part of what it means, a part of what it means to become aware of your need of salvation is to be humbled by your inability to save yourself. And this is what we see in the gospel. In the gospel, if you've never heard it, uh, the gospel is a story of how God created you and he created you for his glory. And instead of trusting God's will as we should, you and I became a God unto ourselves. We say, God, we're not going to go your way. We're going to go our own way. We're going to treat you as if you're not good, as if you're not trustworthy, as if we know better than you. In our sin, we ultimately say, God, we know a better life than you do, and we know the path to good more than you do. We consider ourselves God rather than him. And because our rebellion against God, we deserve his, his just and eternal punishment However, because of the great grace and love of God, our God in heaven sent his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ lived the perfect life, the life that we did not live. He died a death, the death that we deserve on the cross in our place for our sin, rising again, proving his victory over sin, death, and the grave. And that's even in the song that we just sang. So that anyone who would come to him repenting of their sin and trusting in him as Lord, can be forgiven and have eternal life right where you sit. And hear me today, what it means to trust Jesus as Lord is this. Whenever you find something offensive about Jesus, you have now determined that the feeling of offense is no longer an indication that you are right and Jesus is wrong. You have determined that whenever you are offended by something Jesus says, that he's right and you need to change. Quick analogy again. All of us have these indicator lights on our cars, right? And all of us have a different response when those indicator lights come on. You see, the indicator light simply tells you the issue, the issue, uh, that there's an issue with your car. It doesn't tell you what to do, right? So if you're like me, you don't have to raise your hand. You tend to ignore the light longer than you should. And I'm here to tell you, I'm not alone, because I was talking to Joe this week, and Joe was telling me about a time where he was driving through uh, West Texas with his brother, and uh, the oil light came on, and his brother was in the other crowd. His brother was like, listen, when you see a light, you need to fix that. So he told Joe, hey, Joe, listen, you need to fix that light. And Joe said, no, nah, we good. <laughs> and right after Joe said that, the car breaks down, smoke everywhere. <laughs> that happens, right? Guys, we can become accustomed to responding to indicator lights in the wrong way. The same thing here, hear me today. The feeling of offense, it's like an inter internal indicator light of sorts. And many of us, our whole lives, we've responded to the internal indicator light of offense in the completely the wrong way. We feel offense and we think that that feeling of offense is always an indication that I'm justified and the person causing the offense is absolutely wrong. We actually see this in the text. The people of Nazareth are offended by Jesus, and so because they are offended, they say, Jesus, you're wrong and we're right. However, that's the wrong response. Whenever Jesus offends us, listen to me today, we have two choices. Either we can say our offense indicates that he's wrong and push him away, 
Or we can say our offense indicates that we are wrong and cling to him in faith. We actually see this in John chapter 6. John chapter 6 is this passage where Jesus says something that's incredibly offensive and he loses a whole bunch of followers. Jesus is talking to a huge crowd of people filled with Jews and he says this curious line. He says, he's talking about how he satisfies the longing soul. And he says, anybody who eats my flesh and drinks my blood can have eternal life. Otherwise, you can have no part of me. That was a scandalous line and many people, it says many of his disciples stopped following him. What's curious about that is that Jesus turns back to the 12 and he asks them, will you leave me too? It says that those people that left him were offended. And it's curious what Peter says. Catch what Peter says. Peter doesn't say that to Jesus, hey, I wasn't offended. He doesn't say that. He likely was. He didn't understand what Jesus had said as much as anybody else did. But catch what Peter says. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. He says, we have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Do you see what Peter does there? Other people are offended by Jesus and pushes them away. But Peter, despite not understanding what Jesus just said, he says, listen, I'm not going anywhere. And the question I have for you today, hear me today, is what will you do when Jesus offends you? <laughs> the question is not if, the question is when. What would you do when Jesus' view on the nature of reality, or eternity, or gender, or sexuality, or forgiveness offends you? Hear me today, those who follow Jesus respond not by pushing him away in unbelief, but by trusting him and following him come with me. But can I give you something else? I believe that one of the reasons why Jesus needs for his disciples to see the unbelief in Nazareth is to prepare them for the work that he has for them. So it's no accident that right after this text, Jesus gives his disciples authority to teach and to do miracles. He sends them out because Jesus knows exactly what he's doing in this text. He's preparing them. And he's trying to help them understand that, listen, guys, if my message is offensive and I'm sending you out to bear my message, you are gonna be offensive too. So you need to prepare your heart for that. And this leads me to another question for you this morning. Not only do you have room for a Jesus that can offend you, do you have room for a faith that can offend others? Do you have room for a faith that can offend others? As followers of Jesus, listen to me guys, Jesus prepares us for the fact that people won't like the message. Hear me today, guys. When I ask, do you have room for a faith that can offend others, I'm not giving you a permission to be a jerk and to use your offensiveness, to use the offensiveness of the message of Jesus Christ as an excuse to be unloving. The Bible says that the fruit of God's spirit, the evidence that he saved you, is produced in uh, expressions of love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As followers of Jesus Christ, it's not our aim to be offensive. We're aiming to be faithful to the message of Jesus Christ, and it follows that if we're being faithful, there will be occasions that we're being offensive. And here's the thing, I'm not saying for you to, to not live in an attractive way. Listen, when Jesus sends his disciples out right after this text, they do some things that are incredibly attractive. 
They preach the message of the kingdom. They heal people. They serve people. They, 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 they do some amazing things. They lived in an attractive way. But here be today, they go bearing a message that Jesus is the only way to salvation, and that's in and of itself is offensive. Doesn't matter how attractive you are, doesn't matter how good deeds you are, the moment that you proclaim the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, that's the moment you become offensive. And Jesus prepares them for the fact that people will hate that message. Guys, in undergrad, I studied philosophy, and I'm gonna tell you one of the main reasons why I studied philosophy. God's used it, but I think I started studying it for the wrong reasons. I was a believer at the time, wanted to help people understand the Christian faith, but I do think some of my, um, uh, uh, some of my thirst for a philosophy was kind of this thought that, man, like, if I could just help people understand it, if I could just make the faith more palatable to people, they will always love me, and they will always love the gospel. And something that I soon understood is that apologetics is great. Yes, we should defend the faith, and we should make the faith clear. But just because you made the faith clear doesn't mean that you've made the faith unoffensive. In any moment that you've made the faith so clear that you make it unoffensive, you're no longer proclaiming the faith that's here. You are meant to be both attractive and offensive. And so I want to invite you today to take a look at your life. If you are always attractive and never offensive with your faith, hear me today, I say this in love, you're not being faithful. And I'll flip it too. If you are always offensive and never attractive, you're not being faithful either. The chances are you're just being a jerk. <laughs> I say that in love, most loving way possible. And Jesus here helps us understand that a negative response to your faith is not necessarily an indication that you've done something wrong. It could be an indication that you're doing something right. This is what he's saying here. I'm not saying this to be negative. I'm saying this to encourage you to consider how you might be faithful. As we close, Ben could come back up. I do wanna say this. We live in such a polarized time in which everything is offensive. Man, you hold a view publicly on a certain topic and, and if you hold it publicly, like you'll offend all the people who don't hold your view. And so here's the thing, guys. I don't want, I don't want you to kid yourself today and think, well, if I offend some people with my views, that means that I'm being faithful here. It's not that simple because right now, guys, we live in a time in which everything's offensive. But let me ask you a deeper question today. As a result of faithfulness to Jesus, are you willing to offend people whose opinion you most value? Are you willing to offend the people that you most value? You may look at me and you're like, Eric, like, how do I know whose opinion I value most in this life? Here's a clue. You can write this down. The person whose opinion matters most to you is the person that you least desire to offend. It's interesting, man. You, you, you watch cable news pundits and uh, we'll offend our political foes with truth, but we'll hesitate to offend our political allies with truth because their opinion matters more because it informs our identity. We'll offend a stranger before we offend our family because our family's opinions matter more. They, those inform our identity. For many of us who are Christian here in Arlington and we realize that it's important to share our faith, 
This is why, listen guys, we are a church who are all about overseas mission and sharing our faith. But this is why for many of us, we will more easily cross an ocean to share our faith. <laughs> this is why we will more easily even go to the hood to share our faith <laughs> than share our faith with our neighbor or our coworker. Why is that? Because we've worked hard to build our lives to get into the circles that we're in. We're educated. Arlington's the most educated city. And for people, our peers, our neighbors, and our coworkers, the callers backwards or regressive, it would sting because their opinion forms our identity. But can I ask you a question? How much do you value the opinion of Christ? His opinion is what truly matters most. Guys, listen to me. Jesus died a death on the cross for you. Bearing our sin, experiencing the just wrath of God. You can say this in another way. He experienced the just offense of his father for our sin. He got the ultimate rejection so that we could get the ultimate acceptance. We are called sons and daughters of the living God of heaven. And he's the only one whose opinion really matters. So listen to me, when you actually have experienced the love of the God of the universe, you are able to withstand any rejection that you might receive for bearing his name. As I close, I wanna ask you one more time. Do you have room in your life for, a, for the whole Jesus? A Jesus that brings joy and offense. Do you have room in your life for a Jesus that can't offend you? Do you have room for a faith that could offend others? Do you have a faith that both attracts and offends? Because to hold a faith that is so beautiful, that it's attractive, but to hold it so faithfully that it offends, well, that's the most beautiful faith in the entire universe. And I pray that NBC Arlington, that we can be that. That we can have a faith that both attracts and offends so that people might be saved. Let's take a moment of prayer. Father, we love you. Jesus, thank you for coming and living a perfect life for us and dying a death and on the cross for us so that any of us who might simply come to you humbly, saying that I've sinned against you, I now trust you as Lord. We could be forgiven and we could be made right with you. We thank you that you are willing to sting us in order to save us. We're thankful that you are able to, that you are willing to knock us down a peg, to help us to understand truly that we're not God, that we're not wise, we're not as good as we thought we are. You're willing to offend us in order to save us. In this passage, you reveals that if we don't allow you to offend us, we won't allow you to save us. Father, thank you. Help us to live like you. Help us to live publicly as believers. Give us wisdom. Make us shrewd as serpents, harmless as doves. Help us to boldly and attractively proclaim the faith. Oh, we love you. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. If you agree, say Amen. Amen.